your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John. That is in the New Testament. is one of the four Gospels. And if you are needing help looking that in your copy of the Bible, please open up to page 3 and you'll find the table of contents. It'll tell you where that's at. Not trying to be insulting, but I don't want to assume that you know exactly where it is. If you want to look it up in one of our pew Bibles, uh, we'll remove the, the, the issue completely. You can turn to page 942 and it will be there. And it will also be on the screen behind me as we, uh, as we get into God's Word together today. Now, I'm going to make a confession that some of you will probably find absolutely shocking. I love warehouse stores. I love them. Costco, Sam's Club, I know those are trademarked and they're not paying me anything for this endorsement. But I love going to these places. I love because you get such a deal. Right? Instead of paying this portion, you pay just a little bit more and you get so much more. You know, instead of getting a 10-ounce bag of salad at Meyer, which is good, and I go there often, you can get 30 pounds of salad for the same price. And they even may even pay you a nickel to take it. I love it. I love going in and get the Sam's, uh, the, the samples that are there. Oh, I love sample day. Isn't that a glorious thing? And if you bring your children, did you know that you can feed them all for 12 bucks an entire hot dog meal? Beautiful. Beautiful. But here's the thing about warehouse stores. The biggest thing that it teaches you, there's value in more. The value of more. And, and sometimes you get so much that you can't even finish eating it and, or dealing with it. Except for the toilet paper. You can always use the toilet paper. I digress. <laughs> Preach, preacher. Alright. But, here's the thing. I think that this value, value generalization, generations that we've created have Got our eyes on more, but so much more that sometimes we miss the value on the one plus one. That, 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 that simple mathematic equation of one plus one equals two, and then adding another one equals three, and then adding another one equals four. And, and, and just what one does whenever you add one to one, sometimes we miss that because we're so much in view of the greatest, the biggest deal, the biggest outcome, the, the biggest thing. And, and I understand that. We want the biggest bang for our buck. We want the biggest return on investment. And if it can't yield multiple exponential sums, and sometimes we just distance ourselves away. But today we're going to look at the Scripture and see what one meaningful conversation to one other person about the greatest one of all can change the world. It can make a difference. It can be dynamic. And so I would ask you to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. As we read God's Word together, it says this. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip 
found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. That is real talk. We're going to get that in a minute. Come and see. Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi! Nathanael replied, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, today we've read from your word. Help us not take for granted the source that it comes from, the foundation that it gives us, the sufficiency for life, the authority that is spoken. And God, may you, the Holy Spirit, teach us all. Help me just to be your servant today. That we may all worship you because we come to know you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. So, whenever we get into the Bible, we always want people to understand what the Bible says. Not because we worship the Bible, but because we recognize it as the Word of God. The God who gave the Word, the giver of the gift, is the one who is worthy of worship. And yet, He does not give gifts that have no purpose. This is an act of His grace so that we may know Him, we may hear from Him, we may see what He has done, and it may lead us to trusting in Him and seeing Him as the giver of life, as the one who exists, as the one who is perfect, the one who is holy, the one who is good news. And when we get in the Bible, though, I can understand that sometimes, if we're not very familiar with it, or if we're very familiar with it, sometimes we can be so familiar that we can read it and just be so passive, like, I'm not getting anything out of that. I've, I've already read that before. I've already heard that story. I've already checked that list off. And, 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 and it can be a detriment to us. So whatever camp you may be in today, we need to stop and pause and say, God, help me to see what your word says. And that's why we always take time to quote from it, to speak to it, that I'm not just coming up to give you a pep talk about Sam's and Costco. I want you to see what the word says. But we also need to see what it means, that, that the Bible was given in a specific time and place. It wasn't just bloop, dropped out of heaven yesterday and placed on your Instagram feed. It was given over a period of time. And the, the, the Bible was completed after 1,500 years of 40 different authors in three different languages in three different continents being moved by God to pin these words to the people of their day, God has preserved it. And 15, I mean, excuse me, 2,000 years ago, it was completed. And it's been preserved for us and intact ever since. We need to see the meaning, why God gave it in that time and place. Because I want to tell you, the meaning never changes. And I don't want us to be a church that tries to take our own interpretation and say that's the meaning. No, 
God sorry, says what he means. Now, once we see what it means, then we can understand the significance. That's that personal interpretation. That's that personal application. It doesn't change the meaning. It should never change the meaning. It can't change the meaning. But it can apply to the various realms, the various applications of our life. We want to see how this applies. To find the meaning here, we say, all right, this is the book Gospel of John. There are four Gospels in the New Testament. What makes the Gospel of John any different? Well, first of all, you have to know that the Gospels are these eyewitness historical accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. And they point to that, that the fact that Jesus is exactly who He says He is. He is the Messiah King, the Lord Almighty, the God-Man, the one who is 100% God and 100% man. And I know that doesn't mathematically work out in our finite minds, but that's why He's God and we're not. He's able to do immeasurably more. But it's pointing to this. Now, the Gospel of John is written because the writer is named John. That's his name. It's a good name. We like that name. And uh, But John, and by the way, that's the English version. His real name is Eonis. You may not know that, but that's his real name. That's how you would look at it in Greek. But he is a follower of Jesus. He's the brother of James. He was a fisherman by trade. And he writes this gospel, and, and his gospel is unique in that it was one of the last written, somewhere between 85 and 95 A.D., uh, which lets us know that John was probably very young when he started following Jesus and became an apostle. But it's written later on, and, and it gives us glimpses of that because it's written after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. by the Romans. It's, it's written after the martyrdom of Peter, because John speaks to how Peter would die, uh, in, in, uh, in the end, in chapter 21. So it, it, posts to a, it put, points to a late dating. But still, within the first and second generations of the church. Another unique thing about the Gospel of John is, while it does speak to people that have some Jewish background, it's much more directed to people that have a normal uh, education in a more diverse part of the world that may not have had that Hebrew education. But it's pointing and emphasizing over and over and over this Jesus. He's God. And because He's God, what Jesus says matters. What Jesus did matters. Why you should trust Jesus matters. So we see that and we learn how it applies. And our aim today as we look at just this segment of the Gospel of John. And what it's pointing to is, is to see that Jesus is one that changes everything. And, and one of the things he changes is whenever he comes to us and he, he gives each of us a new identity through the gospel that reorients our value system. It changes what we place value on, how we see the world, how we see our lives, how we see the church. And it does this as we are his disciples. Now, as we get into this, we're going to ask, what does that reorientation of our value system look like? How does that change our value it doesn't mean you're going to go into sam's club and think well this is not a deal anymore i still go into sam's club and think this is a deal okay so it's not going to reorient that value system it's going to reorient the value system of how you are one who shares with one another how you share the gospel the first way it reorients this value system is it teaches us to be a willing and volunteering witness that that's a part of our call as a disciple. And this is not something that's late in the game. Sometimes we look at 
the emphasis of the Great Commission. We'll be preaching on, I'll be preaching on it in a couple of weeks, uh, after Easter. We'll be looking at that. But sometimes we look at just Matthew chapter 28, those last, uh, days of Jesus after his resurrection. And we point that and see, well, see, that's what Jesus said. He, the disciples just weren't getting it. And so he had to emphasize last that this is what's going to be the everlasting mission of the church. And while it is true, it is the everlasting mission of the church until Jesus returns. Here in John chapter 1, in the beginning parts of His ministry, you see His disciples at least getting a part of this. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a misknown thing for them. It wasn't something that was like very vague for them. Now they may not have known every detail of what the Gospel would look like because they had not yet experienced and witnessed the power of the cross and Jesus' resurrection. But they understood, I must be one who goes to one to tell them about the one. My value system has changed. We talked about how a few weeks ago how Peter and Andrew and James and John, they, they, they leave their, their livelihood and they leave their parenthood as their, their, their dad and they go and follow Jesus. That this calling is going to redirect our life, but it's also going to reorient our value system. Here, I want you to notice Philip's response to meeting Jesus. Now, once again, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't give us every single detail of every single conversation, but it gives us some simple words that are found. Jesus had decided to leave for Galilee. And here, he is encountering Philip. And you may wonder, why is Jesus leaving, or leaving for Galilee? Well, he was down and met some of John's disciples, and now he's on the way to meet this other person that would be his disciple named Philip. And he finds Philip. Simple words. Follow me. Follow me. Those are two simple words, yet life-changing words when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. And we talked about how the, the Bible is not telling us to become Christians. It's telling us to become followers. That the Bible only uses the word Christian three times, and that's in a derogatory way. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I would be okay with someone said, "Well, that's like a little Jesus guy. That's fine." But it does command us to follow Jesus, to be His disciples. He uses that over two hundred and eighty times, just the New Testament alone. And so, the words that resound with Philip to follow him, he does something unique. He's from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. They had made their livelihood in Capernaum but they're from Bethsaida so Philip must have known them but then he says you know I've got this friend and he goes and finds Nathaniel and he tells him guess what we found someone special not just anyone not just a cool guy not just a happening dude not just a miracle worker not even just a radical reform type teacher that is shaking up things in the, the spectrum around his day. He says, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. And so what you see is, G, is, is Philip is doing something that is totally an aftermath of what it means to follow Jesus. That because he's followed Jesus, his value system is reoriented. He's not just so consumed with himself and what he can get and what he can do. 
And I say that because that's just the natural mode of who we are. That's just who we are. If we want to do what benefits us, and you may be like, well, I want to do what benefits my family. We may try to pacify that feeling. You want to do what benefits your family because it benefits you. Because you love them and it makes you look good. That we do that. It's our natural focus to do that which benefits ourselves. That's our value system. To do more for me. And Philip could have been like, Jesus chose me. Alright, bye everybody. I'm going with him. He's like, no, I, I got this friend Nathaniel. He needs to meet you too. He needs you too. And so he is this willing and volunteering witness. He first chose to follow the call of Jesus, which all of us must do. I Believe me, I'm not telling you to, to forget the whole Jesus message, the Jesus gospel aspect, and then just be on mission. No, I want you to know the mission and, and follow Jesus. But as you're following Him, go and find the ones. And the ones that are already near you. Nathaniel is not a stranger to Philip. They know each other. Here's the rub. We must first clarify, and I, I want to emphatically clarify today, we want you to first follow Jesus. If you have not heard that, if you have not responded to that, if you have not trusted Him, if you have not come to Him as the giver of life, the Gospel that the Holy God sees the offense of sin and yet knows we can't pay the price, there is no work capable of saving ourselves. He sufficiently supplies the payment. What does that supply? Himself. No person could ever do it for you. No one is ever good enough. You could never achieve it for yourself. So what does God do? And please don't tell me that God is angry or God is hateful because He said, I love you so much, I'll die for you. And that's what He did. And based on that work alone, He makes that known to us. We make it known to others so that they see who this Jesus is and the personal responsibility of what they will do with Him is placed in their hands and their hearts. That's why we don't make light of these days. That every opportunity should be a moment where we get to share the Gospel. We cannot share it enough because the lost need to hear it and the church needs to be fueled by it. And, and based on what Jesus does, it changes our eternity. When, when we trust in Him, our life is changed off the default situation. See, it's not that, well, that person didn't trust Jesus, so God sent them to hell. No, they were already going there. That's the default of sin. That's the default of life and, and death and, 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 and rebellion against God. It's, it's not because you didn't choose, choose Jesus that you're going to hell. It's because you didn't choose Jesus that you didn't get heaven. And that's the, that's the vice prize. That's the aftermath prize. Is heaven. But it is eternity, it is life. What do I mean by that? What we want you to know is we're not trying to sell you the idea of a real estate game here to try to just get you to move neighborhoods. We're trying to get you to the king. And if you get the king, you get the kingdom. And God says, I want to give you the king. I want to the cross for you. And I want to change your eternity. But I also want to change your life here as you know me. And Philip, he may not have seen everything about the gospel and all the details of the cross, but he knew some good news. This Jesus, he's the one we've been waiting for. 
This Jesus is someone everybody needs to meet. This Jesus, i got to get you to Him. Philip shows this willingness and this volunteer nature of being a witness. And here's the rub. We must share Jesus. Just as it was shared to you, you must share it with others. And here's one of the reasons. I'll never know who you know. Do you know that? At least I'll never know them in the way you know them. I will never know your best friend the way you know your best friend. I will never know that loved one in your family the way you know that loved one in your family. Now, I'll be there and I'll love them. If, you, if they get involved in this church, I'll be their pastor and I'll care for them. And I will know some things about them, but I'll never know them the way you do. And God has specifically leveraged you in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your volunteer charity, wherever it may be, because God places you in places where you will know people that need Him. So do not think that the invitation to be a Christian is just to go to church, put something in the offering plate, be a part of the seating capacity, cheer on when others do a good job, and miss that God has purposely placed you to encounter people. People that you know. We must voluntarily, willingly witness to them. And I say voluntary and willingly because being a witness doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen by proxy, by just being around people. That if I am just good enough and dressed nice enough and kind enough and smart enough, doggone it, people will like me. That is not the gospel. The whole preach the gospel and when necessary use words. It is a, it is a passive feeling. Yes, we are to be people that demonstrate that Man, the gospel's changed my life. It has made me be a part of activities I never thought I would be a part of. That is true. But those activities didn't save me. My church tenants didn't save me. My giving account didn't save me. Jesus did. And someone took the time to share that with you. It might have been on a platform and you were a part of a bigger room or it might have been a one-on-one conversation. Maybe it was in a Sunday school room. Maybe it was in, a, in the locker room. I don't know. But it needed to be clearly shared. And we must not be dismissive of our role to play. That we are made disciples to make disciples. To accept Christ's identity is going to change our value system. It's going to change our mission. Second, is to be a walking and vocal witness. Here, Philip found Nathaniel and told him. This is what the Scripture specifically said. He found Nathaniel, a person he already knew, but he went and found him, and told him. And told him these things. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and, and so did the prophets, Jesus the son of Joseph. So here... Philip does what is absolutely essential, and I just want to teach you how practice is. He walked to the person. He got in their domain, in their bubble, not in their personal space. Don't be a close talker. That's, that's, don't do that. I mean, just don't do that. But be personal. Be in that realm and, and share 
with the person. At times, this is going to be active. I would say almost all the time, it's going to be active. I would say the exception to the rule is whenever it just seems to happen and I don't know how God and His providence put the right people in the right place. I think that's the exception to the rule. But it's the active role that sees lives changed over and over and over again to be the person that walk into the place where other people are. That's why we can't just be merely a come and see church. We must be a go and tell church. We need to be both and. When people come here, they should have an expectation and we should live out that expectation. The gospel is going to be preached here. It's going to be taught here what the Bible says. That should be absolutely essential. But it cannot be the only point because that's only half the puzzle. It's got to be come and see and go and tell. And to go and tell means to walk and talk. To live it out. You see, each disciple, Christ follower, church member is meant to do their part. Just think about this. What would it look like in our nation alone? Because I know sometimes we, we, we don't know what it looks like in other places. Maybe in just our city alone. Let's just break it down a little smaller. Let's break it down a little smaller. What about just our neighborhood and our little community alone? What if every disciple of every church here in this area, every person that claims to be a Christ follower, invited one unchurched or unsaved person to go to breakfast with them? Or lunch. Those are two great things that I enjoy. Or dinner this year. Just once a year. If every single person that is in a church today or proclaims Christ today, I didn't say invited them to church, but what if they went and had dinner just for the intent that I want to find my Nathaniel and be the Philip that speaks to that one. Not because I'm trying to be Philip, but because I know Jesus. And that person needs to know Jesus. What would that look like? I think it would be caring. I think it would be missional. I think it would be community. It would be something unlike we've never seen before. So here's my challenge to you. What if each of us made that commitment? To each of us say each person in this room. I don't know how many is in here today. I haven't done the counting. I know our team does that. But what if we all made a commitment and said, you know, I know Jesus. And I know someone that's probably nearby enough that they, and they don't have Jesus. I'm going to make a commitment to go have dinner with them this, this year or this month or this week because they need Jesus. Not just so I can go talk about the game. Although that's fun. Not so that we can just go get free samples at Sam's Club. That's fun. And if that's where you need to go have your dinner, that's fine. If you want to take somebody on a shopping trip to Sam's Club and have some free samples, you do that. But the important point is to be the walking and vocal witness. To get to the gospel so that you can bring them to the king. The one who changes life. But what's it going to take? It's going to take us being a very wide-eyed and valiant witness. Because here's the thing about people. People are like us. And they have questions. Now you may be scared of the questions. I understand what it's like because we had this utter fear. I had this utter fear. What if I don't have 
the right words to say? Or, or, or what if my life has been a wreck so much that and it's just irredeemable for that person? <laughs> Nathaniel had a question. Philip says, he's Jesus of Nazareth. You can see the big smile and excitement. He's telling about the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? you got to understand, Nazareth was like the podunk part of town. The podunk part of the, of the, of the country. It, it was not the, the most reputable place, not the most populated place. <clears throat> and so he asked this, this very interesting question as an Israelite, what good can come out of there? You're going to find people that when you start talking about Jesus, what kind of good can come out of Jesus? Man, that is an open door question. Can you just see the invitation that comes with that? Don't look at it as defensive. I, I can imagine Philip being like, dude, forget you. Leave me alone, Nathaniel. You, you don't even trust what I say. I'm not even going to tell you the rest of the good news. No, Philip seizes the the, the opportunity. Oh, let me tell you. Come and see. See for yourself. Find what what, what is so different about this Jesus. Let me tell you. Let me introduce you to the Jesus the Bible tells us about. For him, he could physically take him to Jesus. For us, we're going to have to help them get to see the Jesus of the Word. As God has made him known to us. So Philip persuades him. Somehow this encounter with Jesus happens between him and Nathaniel. By the way, you may wonder why you don't see Nathaniel's name anywhere else in the Scripture. He's also known as the disciple by the name of Bartholomew. Um, I don't know why he chose that one over Nathaniel, but I guess it's just it was different. It's kind of like being named Jerome. You just kind of go with it. But <clears throat> here it is. He gets brought to Jesus. And there's this moment. Where Jesus looks at him and says, man, you're a true Israelite. There's no deceit in you. Man, you are absolutely 100% Hebrew dude. There's nothing deceitful. You are who you are, aren't you? And Daniel's asking another question. How do you know me? That's also a very true question, by the way. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows every day from the first and the last. And so what does he tell Nathaniel, in this encounter, when, when he gets to meet Jesus at this introduction by Philip, he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He says, Rabbi. He's like, wow, you're a teacher. That's what that exclamation is. You're a teacher. I want to follow. You knew that? Man, you must know a crazy lot of things. You're the Son of God, the King of Israel. And I love Jesus' response here, being very upfront with us. You want to follow me because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. That doesn't seem like the most great of foundations, really. Just because I convinced you. I could have been like around the corner and been like, Hey, Phil, go get that guy. I'm going to tell him I saw him under a fig tree later. That's very flimsy, right? But Jesus doesn't say, This is why you should follow me because I saw you under a fig tree. He says, This is why you're going to follow me. If you want to follow me, you're going to see the greatest thing of all. You're going to see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. What does that even mean? We may not even get that reference because we don't talk like that. 
But he's going back to the reference of, of Jacob when Jacob had that dream and when he was running away from his family. He has this dream as he's laying there. And, and some people call it Jacob's ladder. He saw this stairway to heaven. No, not that song. But he's seeing it. And, and there he's seeing like there's no separation. And God is, is restored in this place of peace, this house of God between God and man. And he wakes up and he's, he's startled by it. And he goes, truly this is God's house. And, and he may not have known the significance then, but the significance is that one day through Jesus, the promise that was made to Abraham and made to Isaac and made to Jacob and passed forward through Joseph and go through that whole time of Exodus and through the time of the kings would ultimately bring the fulfillment of Jesus where what was once broken in the Garden of Eden by man's sin, God's going to restore a way. A way for there to be communion between God and man once more. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you're going to see that. In fact, if you follow me, you're not going to miss that. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, once again, we can't miss that. It's all right to talk about Jesus be like, I want to tell you about the miracles He's done. That's okay. Tell Him about your story of how He's worked wonders. You can talk about Jesus and be like, man, the way He teaches, the way He spoke, no one was ever like that. And that's true. We should learn from Jesus. We may be really interested in Jesus, how He like debunked the system. You know, He was like radical. And that's okay. But that's not why we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because He restored the way. And He is the way. And He is the truth. And He is the life. And that is what the world needs. They don't need another guy just doing miracles. They don't need that. I mean, it's nice. It's great. I'm thankful he does it. But that's not the ultimate need. We don't need another teacher. I'm glad he does it. We need that, but it's not the greatest need. We need the Jesus that saves. We need the Jesus that says, I make myself available. But what does it take for us to get there? If we're going to be a wide-eyed, open our eyes and see what needs to be done, and valiant, ready to charge hell with a water pistol or whatever analogy you want to use, what is it going to take? It's going to take dealing with a couple excuses. It's going to deal with facing spiritual apathy, spiritual lethargicness. What does that mean? Just content with being content. Or maybe content with being discontent, but not discontented enough to get content. What does this look like? Well, you may have noticed that I got a little bit of gut. Just a little bit. It's this small, I know. but I could stew about it and be mad about it and self-deprecate myself about it or joke about it or whatever. Or I could not be lethargic. Not be apathetic on the days that I need to actually get up and do something and I can do something. If I want to do something about this, I've got to do something about this. I've got to get up and go. We've got to deal with the, the excuse of, of growing inclusiveness. There's this growing direction that proclaims all religions lead to God. And, and that's a prevailing, overwhelming opinion. But it's just not true it's just not true and even saying that that all religions are right 
is to say all religions are wrong. Because you very much pointed a target at them and said, I believe all religions are right, so what you specifically believe is wrong. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is not just one way to salvation. It affirms that He is the only way. Because salvation is not the end goal. To get to Jesus is the end goal. There's all kinds of things that can be learned from other good religions. I'll admit that. There's good virtues from our people that are part of cults. It's weird. They do, but they do some good things. It's a total false religion and should be avoided at all costs. But they have some good virtues. I live with some in Wickenburg that totally followed a cult in Arizona. They were just the most wholesome of people ever. I would applaud them on that. They just didn't know Jesus. And I pray for them for that. Another issue that we have to deal with is disbelief in hell. I think this undermines the urgency that we have to uh, placing our faith in Christ alone and, and making and and making sure that others understand what that looks like, because we really don't believe the wrath of God, the refuge that's only found in Christ. I don't know if I can buy that. We got to get over that. Hell's a reality. By the way, I'm preaching it next week, so I'll know if you come next week. Now that you know that, you know that is what it is. Because it's a big, big topic. And I don't like preaching on hell. I hate it. I hate it with an utter hatred. But it's in the Bible. And it's the obstacles that can be dealt with. And it's the obstacle that only Jesus can overcome. We've got to get over the, the issue and the excuse of busyness. See, the unchurched, they need us to tell them about Jesus. But sometimes we tell them about a to-do list. I just get busy doing this, or or we have such a big to-do list that we forget to tell them about Jesus, and we, we give them such a task that we miss out on getting them to Jesus. We've got to get over the fear of rejection. Now, I want you to know this. Some people think that everybody in the world outside of church hates Jesus. But actually, research says that if a friend invited an unchurched or lost person to come to church with them, the, the ones that polled that said they were not a churchgoer, not a believer, and that they were open to it, if a friend asked them, did you know that 75% said yes? That 75% would be open to have that conversation with a friend. That means only one in four is going to be that person like, get away from me. Still good chances. Still good odds. We've got to be getting rid of our fear of being known as intolerant. I know that's a big word today. and We should love one another. Do not hear me saying to be mean or cruel or put up a shield that pushes people away. But the gospel is an offense to sin because we love sin. That's why we do it. We like it. So the gospel is an offense that was brought to face us. It says God chose to deal with that thing that you love because He loves you more. And you need Him more. And so when we present this, we've got to understand we're going to be telling people 
about the offensiveness of sin, and that's going to be offensive. But it's also going to point them to the one that loves them more than they could ever possibly know and redeems them. We've got to deal with the losing habit of witnessing. I, I know I've heard people ask, you know, well, Pastor, back in the day, we used to go knock on the doors in the neighborhood. And, and, and that was how we did soul winning. And, and I believe in soul winning. It's the part that we need to be a part of. But why don't we go and do that anymore? Well, generally because I don't want a, a, a nine millimeter pointed at my face in the middle of the night when someone's having supper. I just don't know people in the neighborhoods and, and, and you probably don't know them either. And the opportunity of walking into an open stranger's house, it's, it's possible but not always the best strategy. But the problem was, when we took away the door-to-door evangelism that a few people used to be a part of, we didn't always replace it with something else. We said, oh, well, we'll just do the come and see thing, and we won't do the go and tell thing, and hopefully it'll all work out. And we've got to get back in the habit. One of the problems is that we just have lost the habit of sharing the good news, so it's not a part of our normal conversation. And it just sounds really, really odd and weird when it first comes out of our mouth. And because of that, no one's expecting it. We need to deal with the lack of accountability. Not try to move this as a solo job for one or two people in the church, but to be a brotherhood that is consistently praying for one another, consistently praying for those who are their ones. You got one of these cards uh, last week on your... Uh, bookmark for you to kind of be praying for the one as you go through the, the Bible and we're leading up to Easter. That's a great day for invitation. But we need accountability. How's that going? I need somebody that, to come to me and say, hey, I remember you talking about a conversation with three guys that you were having and they, they seem very open. Where's that led to? Have you followed up with them? To have that kind of boldness and, and accountability helps spur us on and encourage us to say, yeah, I need to do that. Thanks for that reminder. We need to deal with the excuse of failure to invite. When was the last time you invited an unchurched person or a lost person to go out to dinner with you? To go have that conversation. When was the last time? When was the last time that you knew someone that, and they might be a Christian, I don't really know. I definitely know they don't go to church. Worst thing I could do is, I mean, least thing I could do, excuse me, invite them to church. I won't say it's the cure-all, but it's a start. And lastly, we need to deal with our lack of attention for the lost. The ratio is out there that it takes 85 church members, an average of 85 to 1, to win one person to Christ in the American church. Well, those are terrible odds. And that must mean that we've got to get more in the game. We've got to be more about this. Now, I don't want to do this for you to sit in the pew and you feel shamed or put down or beat up that, man, the preacher really got on me to me today and I might do something or I might pout. I don't know. That's not what it's about. I'm doing this. God, I want to invite us to be in this together. To say, God, you've planted a beautiful place here, a place of worship, a people of faith. And we recognize that beyond our walls, maybe even within our walls, there's still people that are lost that need you. Help us not to be negligent with the gospel. Help us to be 
willing, volunteer witnesses. Help us to be walking and vocal witnesses. Help us to be wide-eyed, ready, and valiant to hit hell with a water pistol. (laughs) Witnesses. Because we are ones that someone took the time to get to the one. And because our life also needs to be about getting other ones to the one. Let's do that. Together. Let's pray together. Let's be about this together. And see a world where a difference is made. Yeah. I'm going to leave you with that. I was going to tell you a sweet little story, but if you want to hear it, you can find me later. I want to be respectful of your time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today... I'm reminded of conversations I've had this week and some men that I'm praying for personally. And I'm praying for the opportunities. You've provided a few, but I'm praying for the opportunities to help them just get to you. And while they may have heard part of the gospel or even the whole gospel, I just pray that you will continue providing opportunities for me to consistently point people to you. May that be the whole goal of my life. May that be the goal of this church. And may it be a real goal, not one that we just put on as a, a badge of honor when we enter the building, we take off when we leave. But God, may it be tattooed on our soul that we are yours. And we cannot help but point other ones to you, the one. Grow this church only in that way, Lord. And may you have your will. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Today, I don't know where you are. and I want to be here to help counsel you in whatever decision Christ might have for you for some in this room I, I it would be just presumptuous for me to think that everybody in this room is is okay in their relationship with jesus i'm not trying to knock anybody down but it is possible very possible that there are people in this room even here that have been here many times and still do not have peace with god because they've never trusted in jesus they trusted in a church They trusted in doing good. They trusted in singing some songs and giving some offerings or any of those things. But they've never placed their faith in Jesus. And I want you to know that today is a day that you can have peace with God. You can come and see this Jesus. And I'd love to introduce introduce you to Him more. If you need help with that, but it certainly doesn't require my, my hand. I, I don't place Jesus on you. If you're there in your seat and you're like, I don't know if I can walk an aisle, but I need that. The Bible tells us, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean? It, to call upon the name of the Lord means to first admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. All of us are sinners and we need a Savior. Some of us already know that Savior. We've trusted Him. But perhaps you have... have waited and have not called on Jesus. 
And just as if you were drowning and wanted to call for help, call on Him who lifts you out and sets you on solid ground. It's not only admitting, it's believing. It's, it's that place where we don't just see Jesus as a cool dude or, or, or some unique old Bible miracle worker. But we recognize Him as the One who really lived who really died, who really rose again, and still lives and reigns as the Lord God Almighty. And placing your faith that this Jesus the Bible says, talks about, He is exactly who He says He is. And the last is confessing. It's that confessing from your lips what the belief and the admittance of your heart. That you confess your sins and say, Jesus, only You can forgive them and I present them to You And I need to follow You as Savior and Lord. To save my soul, but to reign as King. Today, if you can do that, you can pray a simple prayer of admitting and believing and confessing and and do it in your own words. There's no magic prayer bullet that does it. But it is that belief, it is that admitting, it is that confessing. And you too can experience that peace with God. But should you need help, I'll be up here at the front. If there's any other decision that that maybe you're wrestling with and and you need someone to talk to or you have questions, please come see me or find a leader that you trust, a friend. Go talk to that person. And take that next step with Jesus today. The music's going to continue to play. We're going to give you some time. Should you need to speak with someone, I'm going to be here at the front. You follow as the Lord leads you.